Welcome to Standing on Points, the History and Culture of Punctuation. I have the great honor to be speaking to an incredibly active and productive scholar today. She's also a public educator and an interfaith communicator who is doing some really exciting and I think rather radical work concerning language and gender in Islam, which we will explore in the next hour or so. Abla Hassan is an associate professor of Arabic language and culture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the States, where she has also received her PhD and master's in philosophy and philosophy of language. And she also holds a BA from Damascus University in Syria. Abla's research focuses on Quranic studies, Islamic feminism and Arabic. And apart from her teaching and public speaking on the topics, she has published in a very impressive array of journals for quite a long time. She's currently writing a book on pain and suffering from a Quranic perspective and has published her first monograph in 2019 entitled Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Quran, Retrieving Lost Voices and on Gender. So Abla, over to you. Thank you so much, Florence. Thank you so much for the generous introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being here, Abla. I'm really excited to talk to you. Abla, would you be able to give us a brief introduction to the Quran? Um, what is it that we need to know about it? Sure, sure. And maybe we can start from the, from the beginning by asking the question, what is the Quran? The Quran is believed by Muslims to be the literal word of God. Um, it's believed that the Quran was revealed to Prophet Muhammad through the angel, uh, angel Gabriel or Jibril in Arabic. The revelation started by uh, 16 AD and lasted for 23 years. Uh, so scattered verses uh, governed by what is uh, known as Asbab al-Nuzul, the occasions of revelations. And it's believed that later on, Prophet Muhammad was instructed by Gabriel himself on where to place these verses. So we ended up with the book that uh, the, the book we have <clears throat> and we know today as Mus'haf or, or Quran, uh, which is uh, divided into chapters and, and verses. According to the tradition, going back to the uh, very first beginning, according to the tradition, the first revelation was the order to read. This is very interesting for us now, right? The order to read. The prophet was uh, a, a 40 years old back then, and he was then in contemplation in the cave of Hira, uh, Ghar Hira, located in the mountain of Anur, Jabal Anur, near Mecca in Saudi Arabia today. It was then when Angel Gabriel embraced him tightly and ordered him to read. The first revealed verses are the first five verses of chapter 96 of the Quran, known as the clot. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, khalaq al-insana min alaq, iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram, alladhi allama bil-qalam, allama al-insana ma lam ya'lam. Read, and this is addressed to the Prophet, read in the name of your Lord who created created humans from a clinging clot. Read, and your Lord is the most generous 
who taught by the pen, taught humanity what they knew not. Now, some notes to keep in mind, and this is very important when it comes to Quranic studies. First of all, Muslims believe the Quran to be the verbatim word of God. This means that the prophet was assigned the responsibility to convey the divine message to his people and later on to humanity. So we should keep in mind that the prophet was not the author of the Quran. In fact, many times the Quran addresses the prophet with the blame and corrections, which can assure us that the prophet was the receiver of the revelation and this will nullify uh, any allegations of authorship done by the part of the prophet. The Quran is considered a literal miracle and, and maybe in our interview today, Florence, I'm, I'm gonna be coming back to this point so many times. There is a whole doctrine known as doctrine al-i'jaz, uh, inimitability of the Quran, a miraculous nature of the Quran. And the Quran itself asserts its miraculous nature by challenging humans to come up with something as eloquent as the Quran, or even to come up with a few verses, something like the Quran. And uh, the, the, it's, it's very perplexing to see, and maybe this is something we discussed before we started recording, very perplexing to see almost all Muslims, all schools, they agree on the miraculous nature of the Quran. And then sometimes um, some, uh, some uh, hints here and there and linguistic observations are overlooked even by Muslim scholars themselves. And therefore, for any hope, I, I, I argue, uh, for to fully comprehend and understand the divine message, if we go with the uh, doctrine of al-Ijaz, we should go back to rethinking and checking those overlooked hints in the Quranic language itself. Because it's uh, how can the Quran be miraculous and then we go with arguments like repetition in the Quran, for example. Even you hear from scholars, yeah, the Quran goes with repeating scenes, repeating meanings. Uh, repeating is not acceptable as part of any, I would say, well-edited document, let alone to be something we accept in a divine text or a miraculous divine text. So rethinking those details is a big deal. But what I want to stress here is Quran as a literal miracle. Now, when it comes to the uh, uh, overall structure of the Quran, the Quran is divided into 114 chapters. Each of them is called surah. And each chapter consists of a number of verses. Uh, each verse uh, is named in Arabic ayah. Um, now, we started then with um, an oral revelation. And we ended up with what is called al-mushaf. So we, we now have the Quran as a written codex, as a, as a book. And there is a process on, on writing the Quran. Uh, maybe we can go over uh, quickly over two main uh, points uh, or views on the journey uh, uh, from the Quran as an oral revelation uh, to ending up with uh, Al-Quran as, as mushaf. Now, although the majority of Muslims believe that the Mus'haf was written down after the death of the Prophet, uh, 
the illiterate prophet? In fact, there are two views to be considered here. And I don't want to overlook uh, the fact that there are two views, even though main, mainstream Islam went to the first view. So what are the, the two views? First, uh, the uh, dominating uh, view that the Quran was preserved first by memory. The compilation of the Quran took place after the life of the prophet and did not take place during his lifetime. And traditionally, this is believed to be a two-step process. The first step was carried out by Zayd ibn Thabit for the caliph Abu Bakr. And this took place as increasing concerns of losing more and more of Hufav, which stands for those who memorized the Quran by heart, companions who memorized the Quran by heart due to battles. So losing more and more of those who people can trust as, as the people who memorized the Quran firsthand uh, from the Prophet uh, made prioritizing writing down the Quran as the, the one of the most important tasks that Abu Bakr himself tried to accomplish during his lifetime. And this ended up with what we can call a private copy for Umar, Umar ibn al-Khattab, who came to become a caliph uh, following Abu Bakr. Uh, the, that private copy remained with the family uh, uh, of, of Umar uh, to be more precise, uh, it was with his daughter, Hafsa. Uh, the uh, next step uh, was or took place when uh, Uthman ibn Affan uh, uh, ordered uh, the destruction of all other copies and uh, started or initiated a state project, a statewide project to uh, uh, authorize and validate one copy of the Quran as the copy to 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 be uh, uh, spread, to be shared, uh, to be made public to everyone else. So this was the the second uh, uh, step of writing down the Quran. So according to mainstream Islam, then the prophet, the illiterate prophet, which is stressed out to make sure to uh, debunk allegations that, that the prophet just copy-paste from biblical scripts or from other books or just was uh, recycling what was told to, to him and writing that down. Probably, probably it's motivated by that. So according to mainstream Islam, the Quran was never written down during the lifetime of the prophet. It's a process that took place after his death. But there is still another opinion. Uh, and this opinion, this view argues for writing the Quran during the lifetime of the prophet. Uh, this opinion, this view, very interesting view, is backed up by some evidence. For example, uh, some hadith and hadith are narrations ascribed to the prophet or uh, said about the prophet. Uh, some of these narrations ascribe the prophet a command not to write anything after him except for the Quran. Don't write after me anything other than the Quran. Those who, write, those who wrote anything other than the Quran should erase what they wrote, just keep the Quran, which means 
that the companions were in the habit then, or at least some of them were in the habit of writing down the revelation. Other evidence come from history, and I know we should be very careful with that because the history of pre-Islamic Arabia uh, uh, is, is a little bit, uh, you know, we have so many theories about it, we can't say for sure anything when it comes to the history of pre-Islamic Arabia or even early Islam. But some hints here and there, for example, uh, some evidence supporting that important documents uh, were written. Uh, a, a very clear example it is what, what's called al-mu'allaqat. And al-mu'allaqat is very well known uh, as the best poems of all times in pre-Islamic Arabia. It was the season of a pre-Islamic uh, pilgrimage where all the tribes will meet in one place. And that was not only a, a religious season, it was also, and I'm speaking here about pre-Islamic pilgrimage, of course, not the Islamic pilgrimage. It was also an opportunity for all the tribes to meet in one place and then uh, exchange their, their culture, their intellectual production, and sometimes trade as well. So a competition uh, over what is the best poem written will end up by writing that poem and it is said that it, it used to be written in, in, in gold and hanged on or by the curtains of Al-Kaaba, the central shrine in, in uh, Mecca. Uh, so even from the name itself, Mu'allaqat comes from Allaqa the root, which means to hang. And this means that the celebrated poems were written and hanged for everyone to, to display them for everyone, to be available to everyone. And the question is, if something as uh, celebrated as poem uh, got the chance to be written, uh, why should we go with the idea that the Quran was nev never written during the lifetime of the Prophet? Other evidence come from uh, the Prophet's letters. We know that uh, some narratives uh, mention that the Prophet started sending letters, missionary letters, to surrounding le leaders, surrounding areas. So probably somewhere it, he assigned writing to, to some of his followers, to some of his companions. Another evidence, and I'm going here very quickly over, over this, there are many other evidence as well, and it can get really complex when it comes to the two views. I take the two views as, as equally convincing. Personally, I, I go with, with uh, the, uh, the view that the Quran was written during the lifetime of the Prophet. But here I'm going very quickly over, over this. The constitution of Al-Medina or the uh, charter of Al-Medina 622 CE was a legal document that the Prophet wrote down once he moved with his followers to Al-Medina to start the very, very first Islamic state. Uh, and again, how come uh, we write legal documents driven from the Quran and we leave writing down the Quran? Uh, also, there is a, a, a group known in Hadith as Kutab al-Wahi. Literally, Kutab al-Wahi means the writers of revelation. And this group is a group of companions who used to write after the Prophet 
the Quran. So if we have a group called Kutab al-Wahi, the writers of, of Revelation, it's as, a, as if you hired, you hired an assembly to write the Quran. Uh, so this this is also another reason that should motivate us to rethink the mainstream uh, thinking of the Quran as an oral, pure oral revelation that got to be written down only after the 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 uh, uh, lifetime of the Prophet. Uh, what I take as the most uh, reliable and most interesting evidence is evidence coming from archaeology, modern evidence, scientific evidence, uh, fragments of Quran found in Birmingham University can more or less can support the idea that it was written by people probably who lived during the lifetime of the prophet. Uh, uh, it's very probable that some of them saw the prophet. Um, and with this, uh, unless you have other questions, with this I can with this I can end on very quickly on writing down the Quran and the two views on writing down the Quran, and we can move from that to now reading the written text. Yes, thank you, Abla. That was uh, amazing. I, I realize I have to rewrite my whole um, passage on. Quranic history and Quranic um, language in my book on punctuation. Thank you so much. It was really fascinating. And I would, I would love to know uh, more about the reading. How, um, how, what are the instructions that people get from the Quran, how to read it, recite it? Mm, mm. Which, is, which is very important because uh, you need, when it comes, and this is something we mentioned in our conversation as well, uh, before we started recording, with a text as important as a what is considered divine text, it's crucial to make sure that the reciter, the reader, and the audience are on the same page. Because you need to be able to fully comprehend the message. And it's not any message. It's a message loaded with obligations, duties, orders, recommendations, it's a whole lifestyle, all of that written in one text. And therefore, making sure that uh, reading the text follows exactly the meaning as much as we can is very important there. What helps with that is what is referred to as the rules of stopping or waqf. Uh, waqf in Arabic uh, means literally to stop. Uh, and these rules will lead the reader on where to stop. And I'm going to be giving some examples, not all of them, just some examples, where to stop, where to pose in order to make sure that he's conveying the full meaning. It's replacing the, the dot or, or the, the command or the, the rest of what we use today. Um, mastering these signs is known as tajweed, the science of tajweed. Uh, and uh, Tajweed itself comes from the root Jawada, which means to enhance, which means if you're not reading while applying the rules of Tajweed, you're not enhancing your, your pronunciation enough or your language enough. You're missing something. You're still conveying the meaning, but it's not the best you can do, something like that. Stopping signs come, if we, if we look in a Mus'haf, 
And this will vary, of course, uh, between copies and will vary in colors, in size. Uh, people can be as creative as they can with, with printing almost half copies as long as they're not uh, changing the meaning. But generally, I would say these stopping signs or walk of signs uh, will come as small alphabet signs in between the, the verses. And uh, here I can share some examples. I can read one verse from the Quran and I can show you how using these uh, signs can, can really change the meaning. So for example, the small letters, Qif, Ta, and Mi, these indicate they need to stop while reading. This means, and stopping while reading in Arabic means changing the vowel to what is called sukun, which is no vowel. You're taking uh, a break, you're taking a rest, you're stopping the sound. Uh, so an example will be if we read, and then we have me, which means stop. Um, now, indeed, those, and this is very loose translation, I'm just reading and translating now, so I'm, I'm sure there are so many other better translations, but just to give the meaning. Indeed, those who uh, uh, receive the message uh, or react to the message uh, are those uh, who listen, who hear, and then we have to stop. And then, and the dead will be resurrected to God. So the question is, what if I fail in making that pause? What if I read, okay? This will be a mistake because then the meaning will be uh, uh, those who uh, comprehend the message, who receive, fully receive the message, respond to the message, are those who listen carefully and the dead. And we know it's, you know, doesn't make any sense. The dead can't respond to anything. And therefore, we have to pause here between those who listen, those who hear, can respond to God. And then I pause. And the dead are resurrected to, to God. And they return to God. So this is one example. Um, other examples are, for example, the circle uh, or the ayah sign. And this is very easy. It's just the stop between uh, verses. It's the demarcation uh, to stop between uh, verses. Some verses can, can be very short and some verses can be very long, by the way. Other uh, uh, stop signs are optional. Like when we see the following letters, Qaf, Jim, and Zay. For example, And here I have Jim, optional pose, When I go to, again, my loose translation, he who, he who created death and life, uh, uh, it is he who created, uh, uh, or it's God who created life and death, to test you whose work or whose deeds are better. And then I have this optional pose. 
I can continue to say, and he's the almighty, the, the glorious, because the meaning I can pose or I can continue. And therefore, they left it optional. Some stop signs are not like that. For example, sil. And sil in Arabic means continue. Uh, it means you, you, you shouldn't stop there. An example is, وَإِنْ يَمْسَسْكَ اللَّهُ بِضُرٍ فَلَا كَاشِفَ لَهُ إِلَّا هُوَ وَإِنْ يَمْسَسْكَ بِخَيْرٍ فَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ وَإِنْ يَمْسَسْكَ اللَّهُ بِضُرٍ فَلَا كَاشِفَ لَهُ إِلَّا هُوَ And then I have still continue. If God, if God afflicts you with hardship, no one but him can remove it. And if he uh, assigns something good to you, He's, he's capable of doing everything. So it's equally, why should we continue here, the question? Because the meaning will ascribe to God that he's equally, you know, can, can uh, uh, cause, and I know we don't want to go to the, to the debate on, on the problem of evil now, but he's, he's the one who can remove, assign hardship or remove hardship. So equal powers, divine powers, given to God. And this is, again, very loose when it comes both the translation and the, 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 the theological meaning. We, want, we don't want to divine here into the, 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 the problem of evil and, and uh, whether God is uh, intense evil or not. Uh, some signs indicate a slight pose only, like waqfa, sekta, or the letter C. When we see la, it's obvious la means no, it's the negation article in Arabic means don't stop. And uh, uh, some, uh, some signs, uh, this is a very interesting one, three dots, when you see three dots. And this means either one stop or no stop at all. Uh, so you don't stop twice. Uh, the example is kitab la raib, three dots, fi, three dots. Lil either I can read it as and then I pause which means this is the book no doubt pause in it you find or included in it guidance to people who fear God the other way I can read it is according because I can see the three dots and then I pose, Hudan lil muttaqin. This is the book, and this is a reference probably to the Quran. This is the book, no doubt included in it. It's a guidance to people who fear God. So it means by using, by following this sign, I can know for sure that I'm reading, it's like signs while, while you're driving, without making mistakes, without conveying the wrong message. I will end with this, but maybe with another sign, which is sujood, prostration. This sign, when you see it, and usually it comes with verses uh, that uh, includes a command to uh, do prostration, or when when uh, people don't don't listen to the to the command of prostration. Something relevant, I would say, to the topic. It it will include. Uh, the recommendation to pause, not only to pause the reading, but to pause and actually and physically perform sajda, prostration, and then you go back 
to, uh, to, to reading. And this is very general. It's علم uh, التجويد. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a practice, it's a knowledge that takes years and years to enhance. Uh, but this is very general uh, guidance on the concept, I would say, not on everything there. It's, it's not sufficient by, by any means. Uh, and, and, and we can move from this to, to vowels, which is also another way to fixing the meaning. So the same goal is fixing the meaning. But back to you, Florence, maybe I'm missing something here. No, not at all. Thank you, Abla. I was really fascinated by, by what you said about the physical um, encouragement to stop and get up and do mm -hmm. something, which is really unique in my, in my research. I haven't come across any, any book that does that, <laughs> any punctuation that does that. Um, and I'm currently um, writing about punctuation or what can be considered punctuation or marks that tell us how to pronounce how to recite or chant holy words and uh, it's really interesting to see what these three different um, monotheistic religions do christianity judaism and islam and i was also really uh, struck that you speak about these you know this this plethora of signs that make very specific um, suggestions, not suggestions, that basically order, you know, very specifically uh, where to stop, where not to stop, where you may choose to stop according right, to your right. experience. Full, yeah, I agree with you. It's a full guidance. And like you, I take the sign of Sujud uh, to be a very interesting one, because I think it assures uh, to be, uh, to be uh, uh, proactive about what you're reading. So it's not that you're reading without thinking of what you're reading. It's not, you know, a ritual reciting of the text. It's doing something about the text. You're very responsive. So when you're reading a verse that is commanding or recommending prostration or shaming people who will just overlook doing what they're asked to do, it's asking the readers, you go and, and do it and you do it immediately. So I, I take it as probably a psychological training on being proactive while reading the text. You're reading to, and of course, this is, this is here metaphoric and it's simple. It's just one gesture that I'm following the text. I'm alert. I'm, I'm internalization. I'm going with a full internalization of the, of the text. But I believe it goes even beyond that. And this is something we miss uh, while uh, uh, reading divine texts, because many times, unfortunately, we change them into uh, ritualistic uh, behavior. It's the sounds, it's not the meaning anymore. So I, I take it as a reminder of, no, it's, it's a behavior that goes along with uh, your mental uh, attitude or, or your alert while you're reading the text. Absolutely. It's so interesting that there's this communication, there's even physical bodily communication between the reader and the book. Mm -hmm. And it's like a meaning that is being created together. And the book really has this power to um, address the reader and even tell the readers uh, how to how to read or, or the, the, the act of prostration becomes a pause. And it's not just the voice, it's the whole body that pauses, mm -hmm. which it does anyway in praying, I guess. And what I really um, um, found interesting uh, of what, about what you said as well was the saying that these um, 
Alamat al-Waqf are like traffic signs that kind of tell you how to not uh, crash the car. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and could you, can you, can you have, um, give more examples from your research, perhaps where you find linguistic ambiguity that um, later generations of scholars and exit Jeets have tried to engage with. Mm. Uh, so, so it's all about sure. It's all about fixing the meaning. It's all about getting the right message. And why is why is it a big deal? Because it's a divine meaning. It's not any meaning. So I can provide my opinion, my view, a divine authority. If I could locate it in the in the Quran, in case you know, for for Muslims, for example, uh, uh, I can I can say here's the thing. If I say this is my opinion, okay, Abla, this is your opinion, right? No offense, but but who cares, right? But if I can claim as a scholar that no, it's it's the divine meaning, so this provides authority. This can end, and this is what happened, I believe, in the history of processing the Quranic text. Because if you go back to the Quranic text uh, uh, for a fixed meaning, looking for a fixed meaning, or if you can convince the reader that it's the meaning in the text, you can end political conflicts. You can rewrite, rethink hierarchy in society. You can argue for based on gender superiority or for based on gender or, or for gender egalitarianism. Because you're, you're basically, you're, you're, you're your opinion will be driven uh, and backed up by the text itself. Um, this is something I'm personally uh, uh, very interested in. And maybe I can end with, with something. It's, it's the whole premise in my book, uh, uh, Decoding the Egalitarianism of, uh, of the Quran, and in my coming book on pain and suffering, a Quranic perspective, which I go back to the text itself to understand the text. Uh, and I follow a methodology, a very strict methodology or way of applying tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an, interpreting the Qur'an by using the Qur'an, in which I use the Qur'anic word as a key to decode the Qur'anic uh, meaning. So if there is a word I spot in one verse, I will go to the way the Qur'an uses that, that word. Uh, in the rest of all surahs and, and ayat and verses. And this is to be is in an effort, this is made in an effort to say uh, as objective as possible and as faithful as possible to the Quranic meaning itself. Because otherwise, we can be totally lost in projecting meanings on the text. To give you an example, uh, based on gender superiority, uh, sounded very fine, logical, and natural to a pre-modern and med medieval exegetes and Quranic scholars. Uh, and they projected that meaning on the Quran, uh, or that type of meanings on the Quran, uh, thinking it is the Quranic text. And it's, it's obvious that we would love, we love, we like to move on with more gender egalitarian meaning and more democratic meaning, humanitarian meaning. So the question is how to stop this vicious circle of trying to project ourselves on the text and how we can respond to the text in, in a state. Uh, 
uh, thinking of the Quran as the best way to interpret the Quran is one methodology. I don't exclude other methodologies, but it's one methodology to consider. When it comes, for example, and, and let me end with one example from one argument in, in, in uh, when it comes to gender egalitarianism in the Quran. So a very famous story, well-known story. We even start with this story with religious schools, traditional religious schools, madrasas, the story of Adam and Eve, uh, um, in which, and this is something not to mix things here, mix up things here, uh, which... Um, confuses two stories or two scenes, uh, which I try to distinguish in my book on pain and suffering. The first scene is the story of creation, which takes place in heaven. The second story is the act of disobedience, which takes place on earth, on an earthly heaven. This is another topic. I know we can't delve into that now, but the idea is we start our religious teaching, unfortunately, with a sexist story because it blames Eve for the misconduct of, of both Eve and Adam. It's well known that uh, uh, it, uh, it, it, it accuses Eve that she had forced the dialogue with Satan, a shaitan, and then she convinced her husband, and then even she uh, handed him the, the, the apple or whatever, the, the prohibited fruit, something like that. Uh, so the story, in its traditional understanding, both demonizes Eve and devalues Adam because Adam was never dismissed from heaven the way uh, Satan was. Satan is is uh, the who, Satan was the one who was cursed and dismissed from the uh, heaven. Adam was placed on an earthly Jannah. Jannah, which is garden in Arabic. And Jannah, the word in Arabic, is both the heavenly garden and both any garden. Right? Both, both gardens uh, uh, were fully, uh, you know, gave fruit and, and, and prosperous and all of that. But I want here to, to pause with one thing, one thing. Let's assume that Adam and Eve, regardless of where they were at when they uh, disobeyed God for the first time, right? Whether in an earthly heaven or in, 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 in Jannah or the paradise. Um, who's to blame? Who's to blame there, right? According to tradition, Al-Mufassirin uh, exegest followed the biblical story in blaming Eve and in demonizing Eve for the act of disobedience. But this is not found anywhere in the Quran. And uh, I'm not the first one to argue for that. It's, uh, we see a progress in, in, in reading the story. Now, while the majority of pre-modern exegetical readings of the Quranic story are dominated by clear tendency to blame Eve, we see a progress when it comes to more modern uh, uh, tafsir interpretations of, of the Quran. And we see Mufassirin reading the story in a different way. I would say more honest, more authentic to the Quranic message, which blames both Adam and Eve for the act of disobedience. Uh, the tendency 
is, uh, and I'm, I'm borrowing words from Nasr Hamid Abu, Abu Zaid, who observed the tendency and he says, the image of the innocent Adam is in its reality a mere reflection of a society in which man is the symbol of goodness and innocence, while the female is a representation of sin and evilness. The story refers to the society more than it explains the religious text, which is true. Because when we go to the Quran, we see no blame uh, uh, addressed to Eve at any point, and it's the opposite. We see in the Quran that Shaitan, Satan, addressed Adam with his temptation, right? We read, then Shaitan, Satan, whispered to him saying, O Adam, shall I lead you to the tree of eternity and to a kingdom that will never waste away? And you here is addressed to Adam, right? Now, after the dialogue took place between Adam and Satan, not between, as we, 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 we've learned from, from the Israeliyat or the biblical narratives that made their way into uh, Quranic exegesis, after that, they both acted, Adam and Eve, they both acted together, they ate from uh, the forbidden tree together, right? Uh, and even the blame in the Quran uh, uh, is addressed to, uh, to Adam individually, as we read. Uh, then they both ate of the tree, both, notice, both. And so their private parts appeared to them. And they began to stick on themselves the leaves from Jannah for their covering. Thus did Adam disobey his Lord, so he went astray. So the Quran says, Adam disobey his Lord, placing, placing more burden on Adam for an act that as acknowledged in the Quran took place by both Adam and Eve. Now, uh, this, is, this is done by other scholars and the, the new evidence I find, uh, and I include, I, this is included in, 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 uh, on decoding, in, in my book on decoding the, the, the Galaturianism, Galaturianism of the Quran, uh, the, the new is the way uh, one proposition is used in the Quran. Uh, if we read the two verses, the first one is a 20, 120. But Satan whispered to Adam, فَوَسْوَسَ إِلَيْهِ الشَّيْطَانِ So I have the verb waswasa to whisper, and I know when we translate it to English is not that clear because both can be translated as to whisper. But here, let's notice that فَوَسْوَسَ إِلَيْهِ الشَّيْطَانِ So whisper waswasa is followed by the preposition إِلَى. Let's keep that in mind. So in this verse, when Satan whispered to Adam alone, waswasa to whisper was followed by إِلَى. Now, in another verse, in 720, we read, uh, Satan whispered to them, Now, when Satan whispered to both Adam and Eve, waswasa is followed by another preposition. The Quran replaces ila by li, right? And the question is, what is the indication 
of, and I know it's in, in, in English, it's just, it's whisper, right? But it's something I would say more close to, like to in English to look for and look at. We're changing the proposition that comes after the verb will change the meaning. And the question is, what's the difference in the Quran between using ila as a proposition and between using la as a proposition because we have everything the same in the two verses except for one switch in the proposition. And the argument is uh, a big deal because it will set uh, uh, Eve free from the blame. In fact, if we uh, 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 reevaluate, uh, uh, revise the way the two propositions are used in the Quran, we realize that uh, ila means whispering to someone specific as a final destination. So the proposition ila indicates a final destination, which means, and this is very interesting because it's taking, it, taking us into the psychology of Satan what Satan was thinking while he was whispering to Adam alone and when he was whispering to both Adam and Eve. According to the Quran, according to this one proposition, when Satan whispered to Adam, he had him in mind as his goal. He had his in his mind convincing Adam as his final destination. While when Satan whispered to both Adam and Eve, it wasn't that he didn't place such an important importance on doing that. And probably because he knew that it will take him only to convince Adam to get both of them disobey God, because Eve probably will just follow her husband in doing that. So uh, the, the, the addressee, the goal, the one who responded eventually, as we know from the previous verses, was Adam. And Eve just followed Adam in, in what he did. Uh, just one thing before I, I finish with this, because to stay faithful to interpreting the Quran by using the Quran, I can't go and say these assertions. I, I can't assert this argument without checking in the Quran for this meaning and this, I would say, semantic implication of replacing ila and replacing uh, uh, li as a proposition. So what is the best thing to do? The best thing is to check with other verses in the Quran where the exact two propositions are replaced. And we can find that in 39.5 when we read, and we compare this to 3129. He subjugated the sun and the moon, each running towards an appointed time, right? And we can see it's the exact same sentence. Everything is the same, except for replacing li with ila, the exact thing we see in our verses in a question. And uh, what, what is the meaning and why, why we have this, this switch in uh, 31.29 and 39.5? And the credit given to uh, the, the uh, huge uh, scholar Fadil Samarai who explains this. He says that unlike 
fits the context asserted in the verse and refers to an appointed to, to a final destination meaning, a final destination meaning. So Ashamsu al Qamar, the sun and the moon, they're all running towards their final destination or final appointed time. How do we know about that? If we go back to 3128, Fadil Samarai says, we know from the context that it's all about resurrection. Creation and resurrection of all of you is no more to Allah than that of one single person. So the context, to, to sum up everything, so the context in 3129, following the context in 3128, is resurrection, final resurrection, final destination. And therefore, the verses replaces the preposition li with by the preposition ila, which indicates final destination. Applying that to 20, 120, 720, the context here I refer to as the dialogue between Satan and Adam alone, and Satan, and of course it's not a dialogue because that was an earthly garden, it's waswasa. So, so it was kind of whispering from a concealed re reality of Satan, uh, uh, indicates or assures that uh, uh, the, the final destination, the most important addressee was Adam and Eve only followed Adam in the act of dis uh, disobedience. Um, and maybe I can end with this as one example of how uh, rethinking the linguistic details can set us free maybe from a long history of projecting uh, different uh, exegetical needs on the text instead of responding to the text and reading the text. Thank you, Avla. That was really fascinating. I really love how you try to go back to the text and sort of cut away the not cut away, but maybe not um, place undue focus on what has been opinion that has accumulated over the ages and over the centuries and so on to to try and look again and look with um, with new eyes, as it were. And um, how you how you use linguistic detail for a political reading, I suppose. Um, and uh, that's that's incredibly interesting and that uh, um, is, is inspiring. I mean, I've been wanting to ask um, what what you would like the listeners to take away. One thing that you would like them to take away about our discussion um, about um, language and punctuation when it comes to religion. Mm. Um, you've, you've sort of given a su suggestion just now, but perhaps um, there's more that you would like to say. Yeah, maybe uh, you know a general a general comment on the importance of language. It's all in the language. Uh, maybe I'm biased. My specialization is philosophy of language, but even with core religious arguments, I feel uh, what we did is a long history of 
going beyond the language, not placing uh, uh, value on the language itself, and using all other evidence. We, we mix and match historical evidence, both reliable and not that reliable, with other resources. Uh, and we end up, which is a natural outcome of mixing methodologies, we end up with conflicting results. Uh, with, we end up, unfortunately, many times with projecting our needs on the text, which is a natural outcome of our uh, research uh, uh, shortcomings, I would say, and, and, and gaps in our research. Because here's the thing, in reading a religious text, it's a human trying to respond to the divine. And there is a human agency that we want to minimize in order to allow the divine to speak for itself. And I don't see any way to do that better than responding to the language, to all the details in the language itself. Because otherwise, uh, we will end up doing the same mistakes we criticize others for doing. Because instead, you know, we will be silencing other agencies, other needs, other priorities, just to allow what we take as, as, as our needs from the religious text. We need to free ourselves from all of that. And I, I see uh, one, one I, not, I don't exclude other, other ways, one way of doing that by going back to the language to set ourselves free from our prejudices, our uh, tendencies to, to twist the text to make it speak for our needs instead of making the text speak for, for itself. I'll, I'll end with this. That's beautiful. It's a great ending because um, this is what I've been trying to explore in the podcast and in my general work about punctuation, that I would like um, people to just pay attention a little bit and to, to witness to what right. they're doing with right. language and with everything around language, such as punctuation and commas and full stops, which is, it's very easy to read that through because they're supposed to be transparent, right? They're just supposed to be, like you said, you know, the, um, the signs on the streets or the traffic lights, which, you know, we register and we behave according to them, but we don't pay as much attention to them. But um, I'm, I'm hoping to inspire people to stop and think a little bit about um, the, the, the very powerful effects of quite nuanced changes in language and in everything that is around language. So I think that's a beautiful... Um, a beautiful place to stop and continue thinking about. So Thank you so much. And therefore, your platform and your contribution is uh, a very valuable and, and much needed academic contribution to the way we're thinking of, of language, because all of us are, are guilty of overlooking what we take as, yeah, we just glance into the text and, and that's it. While no, we need to go back and and give it, you know, uh, uh, give give more more, you know, place more importance on. Are we really reading? Right? It's that simple. Are we really reading, or are we just projecting things into the text? So yeah, and and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you as well, Florence, for uh, for for this very important contribution to our world. Thank you so much for all you do, Florence. Thank you, Amla. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you for having this conversation with me. And I'm very um, excited to read more 
of you and hear more with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.